Ezekiel tonight. Ezekiel 38. So we're picking up on the Ezekiel series. I think this is Sermon 43, um, 48 chapters, so 10 more chapters to go. We'll see um, how long it will take. Ezekiel 38, verse 1, God's holy word. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. I'll bring you out in all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them, splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops, Beth Torgama, from the remote parts of their north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared, prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you'll be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations. They are living securely, all of them. You will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, many people with you. Thus says the Lord God. It will come about on that day that the thoughts will come into your mind that you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of the unwalled villages. I will go up against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages, will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? Therefore prophesy, son of man, say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You'll come from your place out of the remotest parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and mighty army, And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so the nations may know when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I will bring you against them? It will come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will, securely be, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep upon the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse. Every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into my judgment with him. I'll reign on him and his troops and on many peoples who are with him. 
a torrential rain with hailstone, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are a holy God, and you have declared your holy warfare against sin, and you have declared before it comes to pass your ultimate victory. All of your enemies will ultimately be put down because vengeance does belong to you, Lord, and you will exact it. We pray that we who love you would um, commensurately fear you with holy reverence and holy awe. You are a holy God. Impress these things upon us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 38 and 39 deal with the same subject. We're looking at the prophecy about Gog and Magog. But I want to draw the connection between what we just read. And it seems, in some ways, it's, it's a little bit obscure, but in other ways, it's clear. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a war passage. It's a frightening kind of passage, even more so when we come to chapter 39. But I want to bring this in connection with what we've just seen previously in chapter 37, uh, because I think it's important, um, it could, because it's a marked contrast. In chapter 37, what we saw there, I would argue, is divine promise after divine promise after divine promise. It was a, it was a, it was a chapter brimming with hope. If you remember, the first half of chapter 37 is God is saying to His people, Israel, and I'm going to say Israel, the Northern Kingdom, um, Judah, the Southern Kingdom, Israel. And he likens them to uh, a valley of dry and dead bones. They're thrown out in the sun. They're being bleached in the desert. And God says, this is what you're like. And you remember, he's referring to them because Israel is in Assyrian captivity. Judah is in Babylonian captivity. He says, essentially, you're dead. And then in chapter 37, he says to them, I'm going to make you alive. I am going to give you new, I'll give you life out of death. And when you think of that, you think, well, that's symbolical. To some extent it is, but God is the one that gives us spiritual life out of death. And that's not symbolical, it's, it's spiritual. He really does it. And so God says to them, listen, you're in captivity now. You are in, your, your plight is, is beyond, um, beyond your own um, rectifying. And he says, I'm going to come to your aid and I will do it. And when we ask ourselves, who could make good on these promises of making a dead thing, dead bones, live. Who could do it? Well, if you have faith, you say God can do it. Um, do we believe that God can can actually raise the dead? Can he raise spiritually? Can he raise physically dead people? Can he raise those who have died in Christ on the last day, give us a new body and join it to our perfected soul? Can He, he says he will. So this is a tremendous promise to an enslaved people. They're in slavery, and he gives them a wonderful promise. It doesn't immediately liberate them, but they're living uh, out their remainder of slavery, and they'll be emancipated, at least some of them, uh, on that promise. But then right after that, um, not, only, not only does he say that, he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. This is the born again. This is, this, this is you will be born again from John 3, 1 through 9. And he says, I'm going to take these two warring brothers um, in Israel and Judah, and the two sticks, and I'm going to make you one. And I'm going to make you truly love one another, and you're going to be united, 
and it's going to be under the Davidic Messianic king. I'm going to do all of these wonderful things, things in and through the Messiah that comes through the line of David. And lastly, he tells his enslaved people, I'm going to bring you back into the promised land. In all of these things, when we think of all of these wonderful promises, why were the people of God in slavery in the first place? Do you remember the, per- the reason they're there? God just didn't arbitrarily pitch them off into slavery. He sent them there for their sin. And it's judgment to the unbelieving among the people of God, and it's chastisement to the believing but the erring in the people of God. They're there for their sin. And one of the primary sins that, that lands them in captivity is the sin of idolatry. They're spiritual adulterers. And they outwardly said they belonged to the Lord. They outwardly were keeping up the ceremonies, the rites. But inwardly, they were hard adulterers. They chased after the gods of the nations. And so God is exacting a measure of lex talionis, perfect justice with them. He says, if you want to live like a Gentile, I'm going to send you off to, 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 to live with the Gentiles. So sometimes our sin as professing believers, God will give us over to that sin And the sin itself becomes the chastisement to us. If you're a drunkard, then God will perhaps, if you don't relinquish it, he could give it to you. And and that particular sin carries with it its own chastisement or its own punishment. That's what God does. Now, in the midst of all of this, God says, I'm going to bring you back. And implicit in that is, I'm going to forgive you. I will forgive you. I'll bring you into the promised land, which is a picture of heaven. And we will live together in this perfect unity and friendship and communion. That's 37. So 37 is just one wonderful promise after wonderful promise after wonderful promise. And you think, wow, what time does the bus leave for heaven? This is so wonderful. The rest of my life is going to be lived basking in the joys of these wonderful promises. And then we hit chapter 38. And now you're thinking, what happened to all the good stuff I heard in chapter 37? We had promise, 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 now war. We're going to be brought back into the land. We're going to be living in peace. Finally, we're going to be brought back from all of the nations. And we're going to have to go through another war. You see what's going on. Sometimes people, Christians think like this. Well, God gives me a wonderful promise that in Christ there's no condemnation. That's true. And in Christ, we're infinitely beloved by God. Also true. In Christ prays for us. The Spirit prays. All true. He's at the right hand of the Father and to see all true. So why do I still have to go through this? This is, this is teaching the people. These promises belong to you. You're not going to experience them in the zenith right now. You have to wait. And you have to wait while you live here below. And while you live here below, it's still warfare time. And so wonderful promise, forgiveness of sins, restoration from the dead, brought to live with God in Christ in heaven promise it's yours written do I have it right now not unless you die right now you will have it and what am I going to have tomorrow well you're going to you're going to see the people from Magog tomorrow they're they're coming tomorrow one doesn't cancel the other one out does that make sense sometimes as Christians we reason like well if God loves me then only pleasant things happen but that's not true Read Psalm 73. It's almost the exact opposite. If nothing but pleasantness has happened in your life, I don't ever believe this anyways, it's almost a sure sign that this earth is your heaven. And, and for the believer, Psalm 30, 30, 73, 
this earth is the worst hell we're ever going to get. But for the unbeliever, this heaven is the best. This world is the best heaven they're ever going to get. And so, God says, in God's man says in Psalm seventy-three, I look around and all of the enemies of God are looking great, and I look at the people of God and they're suffering. That's this, this, the um, Ezekiel thirty-eight. We're still living in the land of warfare. We're not home yet. So one doesn't cancel the other. So when we are going through spiritual battles, pain, privation, all of those things, we are not to conclude, well, God's promises are not true. Oh, no, no. We've been raised to spiritual life. He loves us. He prays for us. We're going to heaven. Um, all of these things are true. The war doesn't, doesn't deny the reality of the other. And it also calls God's people to wait to receive the fullness of the promise. Read Hebrews chapter 11. All of the people of God in the Old Testament, the true saints, they knew that the promised land was not a patch of re- renovated dirt. They knew ultimately it was the celestial city, to use John Bunyan's uh, phrase. They knew that the promise that they had came after they died. They knew it. So labor, pilgrim, labor, pilgrim, fight, and then reaching the promised land. And so, and what will we endure before we go to receive these promises? We're going to endure this. So life is not a sprint unless God takes us very, very quickly. Life is an endurance race. But as I prayed, the endurance is not, is not, um, it's not white knuckle grit. It's, it's not apathy. You know what I mean when I say apathy? Oh, great, life is lousy as a believer. Look, at I get these wonderful, great promises, but then I have to live like, a, like the dregs of the earth. Oh, God has shafted me. That's, that's apathetic. We, we, the, the words of the comfort are given to us so that they would buoy us through, looks like we're going to have a war. Looks like there's going to be another invader, and after them will be another invader, and then God will put them down. But we're living on the promises as the people of God. Well, it looks like hard times. We're living on the promises. The kind of peace that we have doesn't come without in our extra, it shouldn't, it will, and God will train us if it is. Um, if our ultimate peace and contentment and happiness is found in externals and we're true believers, God will teach us a better way. The peace that we have can't be taken. The promises belong to God and Christ are given to, they can't be taken from us. So it's not contingent upon whether we're healthy. So that little insert I put in about sorrow, when you're unhealthy, you can be the happiest that you ever are uh, because you're living on wonderful promises. So if the invaders are coming into the land, you can be content and satisfied and peaceful. Why? Because you're going to lose your house and crops? No, no. Because ultimately our joy and our peace and our contentment is not found in our externals. It's found, he's raised me from the dead. I have new life. It's eternal life. It can't be extinguished. It can't be taken from me. How do you know that? It says it. So we live through chapter 38 by living on chapter 37 if that makes any sense so that's what that's that's the connection between these two and obviously this is a another passage that god he's speaking to an enemy through his prophet ezekiel this case gog and magog but obviously the bible is given to the church which is what we read in paragraph chapter one paragraph one so it's the unbeliever doesn't believe this anyways that's the definition of an unbeliever but this is meant to comfort the believer and so God tells the believer, hey, we're more war to warfare. We're, we're, we're a fighting people. Again, 
not bombs and bullets. I mean, this is the Old Testament epoch. And, and, but God tells the people, prepare. While you live here on the earth, you're not in heaven yet, and there'll be another invader, in this case, this particular invader. That, that's what we're looking at. Um, now, what are some things that we can learn about this particular? Um, the identity of Gog and, and, and Magog. The first time this fellow Gog is mentioned is First Chronicle chapter 5. And it's a personal name. And it's in reference to the family of Reuben. And I think this fellow's father is named Joel. There are some commentators that say, well, this is the prophet Joel's um, son. I don't think so. I, man, I worked a ton working through genealogies. Go in here, go in there. I, I don't think so. So not everyone named Joel is, is, is Joel the prophet. So the best I can say is associated with the family of Reuben. His father, his name is Joel. I couldn't track down in scripture which particular Joel it is, but that's the first time that we have this particular fellow's name being used. And then the other name that we find, Magog, we do have more uh, precise um, information on when we find this. This is also given to us previously as a personal name, descended from, I guess, the, the first family that got off the boat, Noah's family. Uh, Noah has what three, well, at least that we know, the three named sons um, are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So um, we have Father Noah, and then he's the, the he has his three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And then from Japheth, we have this in Genesis 10 2. Uh, he begets Gomer and Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyras. So we, over here we have Meshach. He also, that name comes uh, from one of the descendants of, uh, of Noah, from Japheth, the son. But Magog comes from a descendant of, he had grand, uh, Noah as his grandfather, Japheth as his father. Now, the word Gog is not, it's the, the, um, the meaning of it is not entirely certain. It can mean like a covering. Sometimes people will refer to it as a hill, something high. Um, Magog is of that thing, of Gog, meaning of a covering, um, the place of that covering, something like that, the place of that, um, that mountain or that hill. That's what figuratively it means. Now, when I told my wife what I was going to preach on tonight, Gog and Magog, she said, how are you going to do that? I smiled with this passage. If you have any experience in a dispensational Christian home, as I do, um, I came from Catholicism and very briefly running around, and then I ended up in um, a Temple Baptist, which is a fundamentalist Baptist church in Tallahassee. They're dispensational, and particularly dispensational churches that are very keen to do prophecy conferences. We would have prophecy conferences, and... um, Gog and Magog, I mean, that was just old hat. I mean, they had that down. They had the red heifer. They're building the third temple. They're getting the olive uh, wood uh, harps. Um, they're getting ready to rebuild all of the, the, the instruments of the temple, all of that. Because the stage was set. Christ was ready to come back and start the millennial kingdom. Jews were going to basically run the earth, and the church was going to be zapped off. So the church gets heaven, and the poor Jews, they get the earth. But I don't know why they think that's a great thing, but, but that's beside the But we were always talking about Gog and Magog. 
And in dispensationalism, you can correct me if I'm wrong, from what I can remember is Gog was China and Magog was Russia. I think I'm right with <laughs> I think I'm right with that. So I don't think I'll be preaching that Gog and Magog are China and Russia, um, but that's what was mentioned at least when I was a dispensationalist. Now, and there are a few of the um, prophecy guys now that say, well, you have to keep your eyes on Putin, um, because, and they, they do think that uh, Magog is Russia. You have to keep your eye on P Putin because likely Putin is the prince of uh, Rosh, which is, we have that word Rosh, R-O-S-C-H in our passage, uh, Rosh, Russia. You didn't catch that, did you? <laughs> I'm sorry. I very infrequently actually uh, chuckle in my own preaching. But, but when you look at these things, you think, so Rosh, Russia, right, right. So I'm, I'm not poking fun. Now, however, to the, to the credit of our dispensational brothers, as we try to determine these particular enemies coming against the people of God, there was an ancient, uh, not a church historian, but an ancient historian that lived at the time of Christ, uh, Josephus. And I think it was Flavius Josephus. And he lived, I don't know, 32 AD, so at the time of Christ, a secular historian. He was a Jew, but he got captured by the Romans, and then he played ball with the Romans. He identifies... Gog, he, uh, Magog, as the Magogites, and he refers to them uh, uh, by their Greek names as uh, Scythians. And he says that they live in a land that would be associated with Ru Russia um, in Central Asia. And then Jerome, an ancient church father, th 300s, agrees with him. He, said, he, uh, he identifies this particular place as in the land of the Caucasus, the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. So these two sources, not biblical sources, they do identify. We have one place in Ezekiel 38, one place in Ezekiel 39, round about verse 1 and 2, identifies this great enemy that's going to come against Israel as coming from the north. And so there are, are some people speculate that somehow it is in that particular vicinity, whether or not China and Russia are going to have a massive war at the end of the time and attack Israel. I don't know. What I do know is this, is that Gog and Magog are also used again as the enemies of God and God's people in a, a more spiritual way. And I don't often bop around um, in, in Bible reading, but I'm going to do it in this kind of case. Um, John, on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation, he receives Revelation and he's told something about Gog and Magog. This is in Revelation chapter 20. And so in this case... Um, I, I understand what we're looking at through the lenses of John. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. That's my hermeneutic, hermeneutical grid. Revelation 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Now, here we have Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. This is the final war that will usher in the return of Jesus Christ. 
the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. This is the Israel being mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, so I understand the Gog and the Magog of 38. They're real enemies. The Gog and the Magog of, uh, of uh, uh, Revelation are, are 20 are real enemies. But 20 shows us that it's, it's, it's symbolical of larger than just one particular nation, one particular tyrant. Um, why do I say that? Uh, what will be thrown? What 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 will be thrown down? What city will be thrown down as the great harlot? Um, oh Babylon! Oh Babylon! That that's the book of Revelation. So when we look at the various prophecies against Babylon in the Old Testament, they come to their zenith as we're reading it through Revelation. Is a spiritual enemy. It's it, it's the Peter says she who is in Babylon greets you. Uh, Luther wrote the Babylonian captivity. We are in Babylon. So the Babylon of Antichrist world, Satan will be thrown down. Um, where was Jesus Christ crucified? He was crucified in Jerusalem. The Bible calls it uh, Egypt, I think, or Sodom or Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's crucified. So a physical place, name being used, but in a symbolical way. So I understand these particular enemies as standing for larger, real enemies, but with a spiritual significance. And God will destroy all Babylons, all Sodoms, all Gomorrahs, all Egypt, all tyrants, all Gogs, all Magogs. God says, I'm going to rain fire from heaven and I'm going to destroy them. I can be clear. I can be dogmatic on that. Are there other things in there that I don't understand? I sure, I'm sure I am. There are. But th- that much is clear. Uh, God will put down all enemies. He will preserve his church in Christ. And, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. That, that's for sure. So we have the dispensational usage, the extra scriptural usage, the spiritual usage. Now, look at verses uh, 1 uh, to uh, in Ezekiel 38. Let's look at Ezekiel's usage. So Gog and Magog in, in uh, Revelation 20, you think, well, are these two places? Clearly in Ezekiel 38, Gog is a person and Magog is a place, clearly, if you, if you look at that. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, Gog, who is this prince of Rosh. And God says to him, I'm going to put a hook in your jaw. So in this instance, Gog is the leader um, that's of this particular region of Magog. And then it's either he's the prince of three places, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, in the general land of Gog, or he is, um, the word Rosh can mean head. Rosh Hashanah is head of, um, head of whatever, Rosh Hashanah, I used to know, but Rosh is head. So it's either prince of the rulers or chief of the princes, something like that, uh, uh, over uh, Meshach and Tubal, or he is the leader over three places. I think he's the leader of Meshach and Tubal. So Gog is the leader. He's the man, in this case a tyrant. Magog is the particular uh, place. 
we have met with these two fellows, uh, two places, Meshach and Tubal, before in Ezekiel 27. Uh, they were traitors with um, the Phoenicians. Um, Ezekiel 27, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, they were your traitors with the lives of men, their, sl- their slavers. And vessels of bronze, they paid for your merchandise. Those from Beth Torgamah gave horses and war horses and mules for your wear. And so this is a person. And God then says to this evil tyrant, I have a word from heaven for you. This is very similar to God, uh, I think in um, uh, Romans 9, but it's referenced to the Old Testament. God says to Pharaoh, is he, uh, Exodus um, 3 or 4, God says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I have a word for you. Imagine, imagine being an unbeliever, which means you're in your sin, and having God speak to you directly by name. I have a word for you. And the word isn't good. So when God comes to everybody, it's always not for a pleasant time for the person. If we're not found in Christ, if, if our sins are not found in Christ, the only way we're going to meet God is as an offended, angry judge. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says our God is consuming fire. Um, it, apart from God in Christ, when you meet God, if you die apart from God in Christ, it, it will be sinners in the hands of an angry God. I, I, I hate to say that, but that's a fact. And so an angry God says to God, Gog, I have a word for you, and I'm angry, and I'm going to put you down. And I know, well, he's an unbeliever. He doesn't believe it. Unbelievers now don't believe when we tell them, turn to Christ. Why should I turn to Christ? Turn to Christ before I die. Why should I turn to Christ before I die? Because if you don't die, you're going to fall into the hands of the living God. If you, if you die apart from Christ, and it will be terrible for you. He'll pour out his wrath on you. Well, I don't believe in a God of wrath. I'm sure God didn't believe in a God of wrath either until he met the God of wrath. So God is love. Yes, First John 4, I quote it all the time. But God is holy wrath as well. Read the last two verses of John chapter 3. And so God, he, God says to this man, I have a word for you. I don't believe in you. You, you will believe in me. And he says at the very end that they will know that I am God. That they will he he's used that phrase throughout the book of Ezekiel and the judgment passes, that they will know that I am the, the, the Lord. And and how will they know? They're going to experience it. And so now we bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and we experience God and know God and love God and his love and forgiveness and reconciliation, all of those wonderful things. There are people that will know that there are no atheists. Uh, the moment any person dies, they're not atheists. There are absolutely no atheists after death. They fall into the hands of a consuming fire. This God. And God will say, speak to them by name. And they will say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he will say, depart. Which is essentially what this is teaching. In, 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 it's, it's terrifying. And I know a bulk of the church doesn't believe this. Oh, John, why would you even say this? Well, clearly this is what he's saying. I want you to tell God that, Gog, I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to put a hook in your face. I'm going to put a hook in your nose, and I'm not going to lead you away into slavery, because that's what they did. When people led you away with hooks, they took you as a slave. I'm going to lead you to destruction. I'm going to destroy you. That's what we read from Revelation chapter uh, 20. So God has a word for, for Gog. He speaks to him. So unbelievers don't believe. They're unbelievers. This is meant for us, <laughs> for us and our children. We should believe this. Should we believe that God speaks to his enemies? Yes. Um, I'm not a political preacher. Um, 
I, I do agree with J.C. Ryle's political maxim. He says, I have one political maxim. I think um, uh, Charles Spurgeon quoted this as well, Christ is king. Um, that's, my, uh, that, that's my political maxim, Christ is king. Um, pretty quick here, the, we'll ramp up. We'll get some other Republican savior to save the uh, conservatives, and, and we'll hear a couple of years of, of, of that, and we'll all, like lemmings, believe it, and we'll all be disappointed again. And then we wonder, so is God even running the show? The problem is we're looking to the politician. We're not looking to the word of God. God says, I am going to tell you, I'm going to put down all of my enemies. Oh, are we going to vote them out? Oh, no, no, no. Vote. I'm not saying don't vote for the best guy that you can. I don't know who that would be, but vote for the best one that you can vote for. But that, that's not going to put down all the enemies. That's not going to put down all of the enemies. I know people that used to go to this church all the time, and they work for family values, whatever. Everybody has family values. And they helped a Florida guy get elected who had family values. And as soon as the family values guy got into the family values thing, he dumped the first wife and started dating his, the page, the 20-something-year-old page. Family values. <laughs> we're going to put down our enemies, and we're going to win. God says, look at, to, to the church. This is for us. Don't look, down, don't look to the worldling to put down your enemies. Look to me. And remember, I know who they are, and we don't. Oftentimes we think our friends are our enemies, and our enemies are our friends. We don't know. Look at I. I don't have a hot clue who exactly Gog and Meg. I know they're spiritual enemies, but when we don't know exactly exactly who the enemy is and where the enemy is coming from, does that mean that we're no longer be safe? No, because our safety doesn't depend upon our own power or insight or ignorance. It depends upon the power and the insight and the wisdom of Christ. And so God tells the people of God, "I know. I I know all the enemies. I know who they are." I know them by name. I'm going to speak to them. I know. I know they're going to. They'll, they'll enter into a league with this one. I think in chapter in verse seven. I think he, God actually mocks the enemies. He says, "Go ahead. Oh no, get some more people. Get prepared. Get your swords. Be really ready." This is a form of God mocking his enemies. And you say, "Well, I don't believe God mocks." Well, you need to read the Bible. Psalm chapter two. He who sits in heaven does what? Have you ever listened to Handel's Messiah? And that whatever they do, ah, he laughs at them. He scorns he, in derision because they're rattling their sabers at the king of kings. This is this. We're going to kill you and we're going to kill your people. And God says, oh, yeah, get, get ready. Boy, I bet you're going to do a good job. And I'm going to kill the whole lot of you. I'm going to destroy the whole lot of you. And God tells the people of God, I know everything. I know. The, the, they're out from under your control. You don't have the power. You don't have the knowledge. But I know. And they're not from under my power. Look at all the people rattling their sabers, getting together. If the entire world could enter into a league in a covenant and bind themselves under a blood oath to extinguish every living Christian, could they kill the church of Jesus? Could they kill Jesus again? It's not possible. God says in 1 Corinthians 2 or whatever... That, the strength, the, the, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. It's nothing. It's not like a 49-51 wrestling match. Like man is about to pin God. God says, go ahead. What's Luther's hymn? One little word will what? Will fail him. But I'm preaching to the choir. 
I'm preaching the choir. I'm not the only one with access to the news. You think, what in the world? What in the world? What in the world? This world is a world gone mad. I mean, what what next? And God, we're, we're not unique. We, we think it's a world gone mad. Imagine if you just spent, for the, for the Israelites, they're in Assyrian captivity since 722, for the, in Babylonian captivity, 70 years. If you were a slave for seven years, would you think that you were on the winning team? No. <laughs> but you would if you read the Bible. And you would if you, if you, if you lived according to this. And I'm not picking on anybody. I don't read the Bible and live according to the Bible to the degree that I should. And, and I, I know most of us don't either. We're, we're, we, but we, we need to. And this is meant to encourage God's people. And I would say, is a threat. It is a threat to the enemies of God. You will lose. God says, you will not win. I will win. That's the God of the Bible. I mentioned a fellow the other day who's a super-duper influencer that said, I, if there were any religions I would, choo- would not choose, it would be Christianity, because it's foolish, Christ dies. And if there was any religion I would choose, it's Islam, because they kill you. Uh, therefore, it's a triumphalistic religion. Uh, therefore, um, that's the kind of religion I want. And I shared that story with a brother that came to the church a few weeks ago. And he said, what that man doesn't know is that's not the end of the story. The cross is not the end of the, the story. If he wants a triumphalistic religion... Christianity is a triumphalistic religion. Christ wins. Not Muhammad, not Islam, not any other god, not any other... other. Christ wins. And all of the enemies, uh, Revelation 14, there will be a wine press, which is what this is talking about. All of the enemies will be gone. Now we're lambs. Vengeance does not belong to us, which is what the church is being taught. And so God says, I know that you're going to come against my people. And the particular crimes that Gog and his confederates make is they're attacking, uh, they're attacking Israel as they've been brought back from slavery and they're living in unwalled cities and they're not expecting it. And now here comes um, Gog with his confederates. Um, when I was newly converted to Christ, I became a pacifist right away. And I became a pacifist because of passages like turn the other cheek. And I thought, well, turn the other cheek means that you can't ever do self-defense or just war or capital punishment. And then an old man in the faith taught me a more excellent way. And he was a very gentle guy. And he was a, a liberal Presbyterian. And he said, no, Jack, that's not a right. Turn the other cheek is an insult and a slap. If someone comes to murder your loved one, it's not love that turns the other cheek. It's love that stops the person from trying to murder your loved one. It's a, you're, you're mixing apples and oranges. And so it, um, when I came to look at the, um, the way our Reformed faith understands the Sixth Commandment, that's when I understood there is a, such a thing as a just war. Um, so a just war is for, I know it principally and generally, Romans 13. A just war is when the civil magistrate with the use of arms, tries to protect those who do good from those who do evil. So it's primarily a defensive war, something like that. Those are the general principles. And so that's legitimate, like a, like a self-defense. You're not out there looking to hurt someone. You're trying to protect those who do good. So there is just war. In the Reformed faith, does make a distinction. This is an unjust war. Why is it unjust? Israel has been returned from slavery, 
and they're living in unwalled cities. They have no protection. They're not, they're not aggressive. You are the aggressor. And they're coming for what? For spoil. They're going to take your stuff and they're going to take your people. The business with a hook in the nose is, and this is what we read from chapter 27, they want to take your things and they want to take your persons. They're going to make you slaves. So in the ancient world, if I didn't kill you, I made you my slave. And that's money. That, that, that's money. That's cash money on the barrel head. And so people were valuable commodities in a war. And so they said, essentially, we're coming to put hooks in your nose. And God says, okay, you're not going to be putting a hook in my children's nose. I'm going to put a hook in your nose. And, I'm, and I'm gonna, you're not leading anybody away. But they're coming to say, I'm taking your stuff and I'm taking your liberty. And so this is an unjust war. And it's an aggravation of an unjust war because you're attacking a, a people fresh out of slavery. It would be like hitting a child. This is, was the, the sin of Edom. Edom was so obnoxious to God. If you read, was it Psalm 137? It's so obnoxious to God because they attacked Israel when Israel came out of captivity and they have the old and the sick and they were attacking the elderly and the sick and the young ones out of slavery. It, it's, just, it's just a gross aggravation. And God says, I know that you're going to do this. And at the very end of our passage, he says, uh, at the end of 38, he says, prophesy. I, I know all of this. He says in verse 60, 16, when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God, Gog. God is going to hallow his own name when he pours out his wrath upon vessels of wrath. And he tells his church that. Um, is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Like the destruction of the wicked, which is what this is, is telling us. God will put down all of the enemies. And he tells his church, I'm going to be hallowed. Christ will receive honor when the enemies of Christ and his church are thrown into the lake of fire. What will be honored? His justice in his holiness, in his word. And what will happen to his people? He saved them from their enemies forever and ever and ever. It's justice to one and mercy to the other. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.